This next section is called The Same Fruit. The following day, Lumpur recorded a historic occasion. This is a, a diary entry from uh, Lumpur's journal. <coughs> Today was the first day that we went walking for arms in London. Venerable Bodhinyana Terra, which was Lumpur's official title, Venerable Bodhinyana Terra led the way, followed by Venerable Sumato, American, Venerable Kemadamo, English, and Novice Gina Dato, French. On this, our first arms round, I received some rice, two apples, two bananas, two carrots, two sweets, and a cucumber. <laughs> I was happy to get this food today because of the way in which it was acquired, and because I understood... Uh, and because I understand arms food to be, quote-unquote, father's food, food which, ultimately, comes to us from the Buddha. The people of this city have never seen monks on arms round before, because most monks who've lived here have been too ashamed to practice it. I am, I am of the exact opposite view. I only find actions that are evil or incorrect to be shameful, which is in conformity with the Buddha's meaning of the term. That's my opinion anyway. True or false, I ask the indulgence of all the sages. On this same day, Kemadamo's parents came to offer food as well, and asked to listen to a talk and have a special period of meditation, which they found satisfying. On arms round, newspaper reporters followed in our tracks and took photographs at regular intervals, because arms round is an unusual thing here. The people of London, children and adults, stood in lines, watching us go by. But interestingly enough, talking with Venerable Kemadamo yesterday, he said, my parents never came to London. <laughs> so the last time they, they were in London was watching him on stage uh, as an actor. And uh, so he's not quite sure where Lumpur got that particular impression from. But uh, he said, it wasn't my parents. <laughs> So again, history is a little bit subjective in terms of how it, uh, what gets recorded and, uh, and why. Um, also, this uh, French uh, monk called Gina Dato here, uh, his name, Lumpur changed his name to Ginavaro uh, when he came to, to Thailand. And uh, so he and I were novices together at Wat Pananacha. So I used to sit next to him on the, uh, the, the line. So he was a, a, a novice there with Lumpur in, in England and then came to to Wat Pananachat. So we were uh, companions for uh, quite a long time, a year or so at Wat Pananachat when I was beginning my my life there. Uh, also, the um, uh, Lumpur's comment about um, the, uh, uh, the monks being uh, ashamed to practice arms round, this uh, had, uh, as I understand it, this comment had come from uh, the conversations that he'd had with other monastics, uh, other monks living in, in London that he, he had met by that time, and that um, the sense of, oh, they, they didn't want to go out on, uh, on arms round in the streets of monks from, from Sri Lanka or from Burma and, uh, and the monks from, from Buddha because um, they were, um, say, embarrassed to look different or it was a custom that people didn't understand. Or, and so I'm not sure about his... Um, his, the exact use of the word being ashamed, uh, so I, I couldn't say what the tie was that he was using for that, but certainly that's um, one of the sort of common uh, uh, say, uh, attitudes that uh, the, uh, the monks of the other uh, monasteries uh, in, in London or in Birmingham or, or other um, uh, urban <coughs> monastic communities, they, they don't go out on arms round uh, at all onto the, onto the street and, uh, and sometimes even will wear like a, a coat or a, a cloak on top of their robe so that they won't, uh, you know, the robes are not, uh, are not visible when going about or a raincoat uh, on, on top of the, the robes. So Lumpur Cha's uh, uh, perspective was, as he says, the complete opposite. And so that he was very um, forthright in promoting the, the customs of the Buddha. So, but the Buddha went on arms round. <laughs> the Buddha went out with his bowl and walked barefoot in the streets. So you know, why, uh, why shouldn't we? What could be embarrassing or, or shameful about that? 
and uh, also there's a, a well-known incident whereby, uh, and it's recounted earlier in the in the book, when uh, there was a, an, a number of monks were invited to go to the royal palace and to receive alms from the, uh, His Majesty the, the the King and the and the, the Queen of Thailand, and. Uh, the city monks usually don't eat from their, their alms bowl, but they would uh, they would have like a, a, a tray with a plate and then lots of separate dishes put on that. So it's very much a practice of the forest monastics to have all of the, your food in the bowl together. And uh, the uh, the strict observance of the of the forest monastery standard is you have all of your bowl, all of your food in the bowl. You don't have a little extra dish for your puddings or anything that you that you, you don't have any kind of um, uh, separation, all the food that you're going to eat, all goes in the bowl together. So personally, that's what I always do. So some of you might have noticed that I never use a side bowl. But, uh, <laughs> I've been here for eight years, waiting for the rest of the sangha to notice that. <laughs> I never use it. I never take a little plastic dish off the uh, server. I don't know if anyone's noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> the few red faces. So anyway, uh, so Lumpur Chah was a very um, ardent Supporter of that practice, and so he was at the palace with the, some of these um, uh, city monks who'd been also invited to, to uh, the, the royal palace that day. And um, so Lumpur's going into the, the place where they were going to be offered the meal with his arms bowl. And one of the uh, the, the uh, other senior monks is, uh, you know, aren't you embarrassed to be uh, 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 aren't you embarrassed to be uh, eating out of your arms bowl? What do you think? Uh, what do you think? Uh, his Majesty the King will. Uh, will feel to see you eating out of your arms bowl. And then uh, Lumpur Chah responded immediately, what do you think the Buddha would say seeing that you weren't eating out of your arms bowl? Touché. <laughs> so that uh, that was his perspective, and he was, uh, as uh, has been said a few times, he was a very f- uh, fearless character, and uh, was, uh, was say, um, very focused on these, these uh, uh, central principles and didn't really mind what the uh, what the world made of it. Also, it's interesting that um, even though people might have been shy or, or, or embarrassed to go out walking for arms, or feel like it was being mistaken for for begging, um, one of the things that uh, that they did when um, Lumpur came and he made it very clear that he wanted the sangha members to go out on arms round every day, and that was something he was very insistent on. He said, "You can." Uh, you can change the the robes if you want, or you can do the chanting in a different way if you want. But you have to go out on arms round every single day. So that was, that was our community standard for for years and years and years. So when Chithurst opened, that was we would people would be going out on arms round every day, just sort of walking through the countryside. You'd always come back with an empty bowl, pretty much every time. <laughs> but we would. You know, Lumpur said you got to go every day, so we'd go every day. But um, <clears throat> the. Um, uh, the insistence that Lumpur had that the, 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 uh, the monks should go out on arms round uh, meant that the, the people of the, uh, of the Vihara, the English Sangha Trust people, thought, oh, we've never had to really have a question about this before. Um, so we better check and see whether it's legal because maybe the, uh, something, there's a law against uh, that or maybe it's, it is regarded as begging or that it's something that's improper about that. And so they uh, had a, a, um, a legal opinion. They actually hired a barrister, like a, a high-ranking lawyer. And uh, they said, can you give us a, a legal opinion on this? Because some people are afraid that, uh, that the monks will get arrested if they you know, go out with their arms bowls. And so then the, the, um, the barrister then um, sat down with some of the, the um, uh, Vinaya books and, the, and the, the, uh, the monks that were there at the time. And so, look through the the Buddha's uh, rules about arms round and, and the particular particular observances you have. You have to have your eyes downcast. You can't approach people. You have to have your bowl sort of half um, uh, hidden by your, your your robes. You're not allowed just to hold your bowl out, and, and, and sort of, you're not allowed to intrude on anybody. You're not allowed, you're not allowed to engage in conversation and in asking people for anything. And so, uh, after he he reviewed all of this and went through it with the Sangha members, and he came back with his legal opinion, and he said, said, you know, it's as if the Buddha sat down with the 1824 Vagrancy Act and uh, had worked out a, 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 a set of rules that drive a straight line right the way through. 
because there's absolutely nothing that you do in your arms round that contravenes British law. It's all absolutely perfectly in accordance with with uh, with the law. So uh, my legal opinion is that you're you're completely within the law to carry out your arms round exactly as you do. If you start knocking on people's doors or you start uh, asking for things, then that's that's um, begging. But uh, the way the discipline's been established by the Buddha, this is exactly in accordance with British law. So you. And he was he was kind of amazed, like this is extraordinary. Like all these things fit exactly with what what's allowed and, and don't go against what, what's not allowed. So to continue. Later in the month, Lungpur returned to Oxfordshire to teach a retreat at the meditation center established in the grounds of the Saws Mansion, which is called Oakenholt Buddhist Center, it was called in that time. There were a hundred people on the retreat, and their dedication impressed Lung Paul. He is, however, noticeably reticent about the retreat in his diary, presumably because he could find little time for writing. He summarizes only that there were, quote, reasonably satisfying results from the work, unquote. Back in London, Lung Paul gave a number of evening talks, one of which he began with a now familiar reminder that doubts and uncertainties regarding the Dhamma could not be removed through study alone. The Dhamma lies beyond language. Study, being reliant on language, could only provide a superficial understanding of it. Only through practice could the wisdom necessary to penetrate the Dhamma be cultivated. He had been asked a number of times about the difference between Samatha and Vipassana. He explained that on a theoretical level they could be distinguished, but from the point of view of Dhamma practice, they were related qualities of mind that emerged as the mind matured. And this is Lumpur speaking. An unripe fruit is a fruit. As it ripens, it's still the same fruit. And when it's fully ripened, it remains that same fruit. Essentially, he explained, you didn't practice samatha or vipassana, you practiced Dhamma. By doing so, the truth of things could be known directly, independently of names. It was a natural process. And again, Lumpur is speaking here. When you keep your precepts, your mind is clean. When it's clean, it's at ease. And when it's at ease, it's at peace. And when it's at peace, wisdom arises. He spoke about the challenge in finding the middle way, or as he liked to call it, just rightness or correctness. How was it possible to know when you had achieved that optimal, just right or correct approach, most effective for realizing the goal, when you didn't know what that goal was? He said that it was necessary to have the incorrect to measure it against. The meditator proceeded by being careful not to attach to pleasure and pain. Having recognized and let go of the incorrect, correctness would arise naturally. And again, Lumpur is speaking here. It's like a person with a pair of scales. That's like a thing to weigh uh, uh, something with, or to balance them out. It's like a person with a pair of scales. If it's weighed down at this side, the buyer doesn't like it. If it's weighed down at that side, then the seller doesn't like it. Only when the scales are evenly balanced and horizontal is everyone satisfied. When you're practicing sitting meditation, you know that if you're not peaceful, if it's not just right, the mind must be attached to a mental state of one kind or another. Constant mindfulness, constant mindfulness was needed to observe the state of the mind. The mistake was in grasping on to what the mind found pleasant and rejecting what was perceived to be unpleasant. Right view could not arise and the mind would fabricate the world it lived in as one of the likes to be pursued and dislikes to be avoided. I'll read that again because that's a little bit subtle. <clears throat> the mistake was in grasping onto what the mind found pleasant and rejecting what was perceived to be unpleasant. Right view could not arise and the mind would fabricate the world it lived in as one of the likes to be pursued, and dislikes to be avoided. Again, Lumpur is speaking here. This is Samudaya, 
the cause of suffering, because we can't live experiencing only mental pleasure or only mental pain. For the duration of our lives, the two are mixed together. And because that's so, it's essential that we understand the nature of mental pleasure and pain as they really are. If we don't understand their true nature, then we will just continue holding on to wrong views. The Buddha recognized that these two mental states are our constant enemies. As long as we don't fully understand them, we will never be liberated from suffering. For this reason, we must develop the Buddha's right practice, Samapatipada. We need sila, taking care of our actions and speech so that they are in good order without creating unpleasant consequences for ourselves or others. Samadhi, firm stability of attention. And Panya, a thorough understanding of the mass of conditioned phenomena. Also, uh, going back to his um, imagery about uh, samatha and vipassana, or concentration and insight, and the image of a, the, the fruit, uh, another a frequent image that he, uh, he used to describe them, and, and this was uh, also to give a little bit of a history, uh, in, in Thailand and in many countries, different monasteries that, that uh, say, were meditation centers and, and um, had a teacher that, uh, say, was known as a, as a meditation teacher. There would often be a particular method, like the Wat Po method or, or the Wat Rampung method or the um, uh, Wat Mahathat method. So the particular monastery would have a certain method. That, that monastery or that teacher, that's, that's the style that they do that. And there would be these kind of um, uh, discussions or disagreements or arguments about whether it was uh, uh, this method or that method which was the better or which was most helpful. And so uh, often uh, there would be places that would emphasize concentration. Or they say, this is what we teach. We teach um, uh, concentration is the most important thing. Or vipassana, insight meditation is the most important thing. Or uh, we don't practice uh, insight, we practice satipatthana or mindfulness, uh, the foundations of mindfulness. So you've got this kind of, um, what would you call, like sort of separate camps that would be competing with each other or, or saying, this is what we do, this is, the good, this is the best method. And so that you had often this kind, this kind of question being asked both in Thailand and also in the West because that same kind of divergence um, had come over from, from uh, uh, the uh, different schools of practice in, uh, in Asia, either following the teachings of Mr. Goenka or Mahasi Sayadaw or Ajahn uh, uh, Lee or whoever it might be, so that uh, that had come over to the West as well. So frequently there were these discussions about how samatha and vipassana or concentration and insight or the, the foundations of mindfulness all work together. So uh, over and over in different ways, the Lumpur would give this kind of explanation about how they're different in, in terminology uh, but in essence, what you're, what you're practicing is not samatha or vipassana, what you're practicing is dhamma. And so the, one of the images he used, which I, I find very helpful and what I usually employ when people ask about it, is uh, <coughs> to use the image of a, of a match and a candle. Uh, so <coughs> Lumpur so would say that samatha, concentration, is like a candle. So a candle has a, a potential for a, a, a lot of light and it can be sustained for a long time. But if you've only got the candle and you haven't got a match, you take your candle into a dark room and you still can't see. There's potential, but there, there's, no, um, there's no illumination. Uh, similarly, he said, insight, vipassana on its own, is like a match. You can strike a match and then you can see, you have, a, you have a light. But there's not much fuel, there's just a little bit of wood or the matchstick. So that yes, you can see, but it can't last very long. But if you put the match to the candle, then you can see for a long time. So... Uh, that's uh, one of the ways he would use to describe how they how they work together. So I feel that's that's a very very helpful and easy to remember description. Lumpur emphasized that being mindful did not refer simply to dwelling in the present moment. The Buddhist practice of sati was distinguished by its moral and ethical dimension. Again, Lumpur is speaking here. Some meditation groups hold the view that it's not necessary to practice sila or samadhi, that mindfulness in all postures is enough. That's good in a way, but it's not the Buddha's way. A cat has mindfulness. Goats and sheep have mindfulness. But it's wrong mindfulness, not samasati, right mindfulness. 
On the Buddhist path, you can't take that as a working principle. Buddhism teaches that being mindful and aware being, means being aware of right and wrong. Having become aware of the right and the wrong, then practice to abandon whatever is wrong and cultivate whatever is good. Uh, this is a um, uh, huge uh, subject of discussion nowadays. Uh, mindfulness is sort of spread all over the world and uh, is a um, major topic and in various different forms of mindfulness practice. And how it's defined uh, often specifically avoids that whole element of ethics and, and sort of right and wrong or good and bad. And um, people like John Kabat-Zinn, uh, who developed mindfulness-based stress reduction, uh, or Mark Williams, who was the, uh, the founder of the Oxford Mindfulness Center and a very prominent voice in, the, in this country, that they very deliberately leave the whole question of sila, of, of ethics, uh, morality, out of mindfulness. So they, and it's kind of coming from a therapeutic background where a, a, a psychotherapist doesn't usually have the role of uh, uh, giving moral advice to a person, that they, to tell them to, um, uh, say, not tell lies or to not cheat on their spouse or, or whatever. That's sort of generally outside of the scope of a, a therapist's advice to their, their patient or their client. So that the, those particular descriptions of mindfulness that you find, if you look up John Kabat-Zinn, on, if you Google him, or, or Mark Williams and... The, the definitions that the, the, these sort of secular mindfulness groups have come up with, they uh, uh, almost invariably avoid the whole uh, uh, aspect of ethics. So um, that's a big issue because a lot of people feel, well, that's not what the Buddha taught and that's not very helpful to people. And also uh, having to be mindful of the results of telling lies or stealing things or cheating on your spouse <laughs> is... Uh, yeah, it would be much better if you didn't do those actions in the first place. And if if there's a, uh, if we're really going to be mindful, should we not be just acting in ways that don't cause ourselves don't cause ourselves harm or that, or harm to others and such like? So um, I just got invited to um, contribute a chapter to a uh, a book by different academics called "The Ethical Foundations of Mindfulness." So I, I've got a chapter in there on forgiveness, I think. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a very strong talking point. So there's a more and more movement within the academic world to uh, emphasize the fact that there's a, uh, a, uh, if it's any kind of um, uh, say mindfulness that is really liberating, then that necessarily has a, a, an element, a, a sila within it. And as Lumpur Chah says, you know, a cat has mindfulness. You know, it's hunting a mouse or a, or a goat or a sheep. They know grass down. <laughs> that's where the grass is, you know. That's that's where you need to go and pay attention to the to the the grass that you're eating. That's the that's the bit that's just been eaten. That's the bit that hasn't been eaten yet. Okay, go there. So uh, uh, th this is a, a big a big talking point in the, um, the the sort of therapeutic world and the, the world of uh, of mindfulness trainings and in the sort of the the interface between Buddhism and science and uh, the the role of mindfulness within that. So I've, it, I, it's it's very succinctly phrased here, but I think very very clear. And um, I've had also discussions with Ajahn Jayasara about this, and, and he's given me very helpful advice in terms of the best way of, of phrasing things and talking about uh, mindfulness. So his uh, in, in talking with Ajahn Jayasara on this actual point, he said uh, rather than than talking about the, the mindfulness that is say, mechanistic, or like the mindfulness of a cat or a sheep or a squirrel jumping through the branches, or the mindfulness of a, uh, of a, a sniper in the army who's mindfully lining up their shot to kill somebody, he would say, rather than saying that's a mechanistic mindfulness, or just a, a, he'd say, really, that's a, a travesty of mindfulness, or that's, a, that's a, a, a travesty means, literally means dressed up in the wrong clothes. So it's like, it's, it's dressed up as mindfulness, but it's, it's a it's a false kind of mindfulness. So that, and I feel like that's a helpful point to make that if it's if it's um, right mindfulness, as Lumpur Chah says here, then uh, it needs to have that, that that element of recognizing this is beneficial, this is harmful, this is uh, this is going to lead to uh, difficulty and pain for for, for oneself and for others, and this is going to lead to benefit and and uh, and happiness and comfort. 
So before going on, any questions or reflections on that? Uh, over the years, I've heard it explained that sati was, uh, you know, was fairly neutral, but that sampajanya was what uh, sort of ensured that you were uh, uh, using mindfulness in a, you know, in a wholesome way. Often people have used that mm-hmm. explanation. Yeah, I have too. I have also. Um, and so that, uh, and also the, the word sati in Pali comes from the, uh, is related to the Sanskrit word for, for memory, smirti. And so that the, uh, and often uh, in the Pali, the word sati refers to the act of, of remembering. And a descript- when the Buddha gives a description of one who is mindful, or someone who is mindful, it's like they can remember what was said and done long ago. So it's related to the, the, the quality of memory. Um, but uh, the, so that there is the aspect of it, um, but uh, uh, the, um, I feel that the, uh, the distinction that Ajahn uh, Jayasaro and Nopocha is making is that um, the, the mindfulness that is liberating, the mindfulness is genuinely helpful. Um, then uh, to say, well, that that's samasati is the kind of mindfulness, and that michasati. I mean, you have michasati, like michasati or michasamadi, wrong mindfulness or, or wrong concentration. So that uh, it's in a way, it's michasati, like the, the the sati of a of a a sniper who's lining up a shot to kill somebody. That he would say that's michasati. It's a, it's a kind of travesty of mindfulness. It's a wrong kind of mindfulness. So that if it's uh, and it, it, anyway, it depends on how one uses the word. But often, the uh, the the term sati or mindfulness on its own, it's being used as a shorthand for mindfulness and wisdom, or mindfulness that is liberating. Like say, mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Uh, heedlessness is the path to death. So the, the word mindfulness on its own, it's it's often just being used as a shorthand <coughs> for some sati sampajanya, sati panya, or samasati. And that it's uh, uh, so like with, with many many Buddhist terms, it's helpful to be alert to what does this person mean when they're using the word mindfulness, or what are they referring to? Is it just the act of paying attention in the present moment deliberately um, and non-judgmentally, which is John Kabat-Zinn's definition? Uh, is it just the act of paying attention in the present moment non-judgmentally, or is it? the act of attention in the present moment uh, with an awareness of the consequences of, of action and, and, uh, and attitude and so forth. And so that, that that sense of being aware of what, what, a, what way the person is using the word or, or the, in, the, in a written piece or a spoken word is an important part of it. I've always wondered what's the difference between heedfulness and mindfulness, you know, if there was any, if that was any sort of uh, help in this kind of discussion. Um, well, it, again, it depends a bit on how people use the English. I mean, heedfulness is not an, an everyday English term. Well, mindfulness isn't either, well, it is more. But so the, the um, apamade uh, and amatapadang, you know, that's often translated as heedfulness, as a sort of more comprehensive and um, a complete quality of mindfulness. That um, More complete. Yes, yeah, so that... Uh, so Ajahn Sajito always very consciously <laughs> translates that apamada as heedfulness, mm-hmm. and in that verse from the, the Dhammapada, it doesn't it's not sati, it's apamada, is the um, uh, the uh, um, the 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 word that's used in that Dhammapada verse. And it's also interesting, like in the Thai language, pramat means crazy. Can I? The girl that. Hmm? Careless, yeah. So that it's like the that kind of yeah, sort of scattered and confused, careless, and that upam it comes from pamada, which means yes, an apamada is one who's not careless, one who's not careless. So that um, it has carries a, a bit more weight than sati. So. Mm-hmm. I didn't fully understand the simile with the. Um, candle and the match. Were you saying that the candle is samatha and the match is vipassana? Yes. So you can have concentration 
but the mind cannot be have any any sort of any of the light of wisdom. There can be no understanding. It can be peaceful. It can be concentrated, but no illumination. Any other questions, thoughts? Yes. Um, back to this question of mindfulness, of secular mindfulness about the ethics. I'm wondering if, um, if people are taught to be mindful, if you feel that, um, like you were saying the other day, when we do something unskillful, and you're mindful of the painful feeling mm-hmm. of that naturally, if you're being mindful non-judgmentally. Um, if sila would develop naturally, even if they don't raise that question of ethics? You'd hope so. Or is it that you can't be mindful enough unless you have the base of sila first? That's a good question. Uh, what, what happens is that um, the the act of um, doing something carefully or deliberately gets labelled as mindfulness, so that someone th- someone thinks I'm being mindful if I do something slowly or I do something carefully or I I think about it first, and so that then that and I think that's in a way that um, Ajahn Jayasaro's term like a travesty of mindfulness or wrong mindfulness because then that deliberateness. Can sort of disguise itself as, as a kind of, as a rightness, um, and it, you you can be unconscious of the fact that your your mind is doing a whole editorial process of well this is okay because I this is good because I want to do it, mm-hmm. so you can carefully follow a desire or an aversion or a fear, uh, you can do it carefully think well I'm being mindful of it, so it's, it's you, the, on the surface level it's labelled being mindful, but there's this this inner editor that's sort of justifying your own fears or desires or actions because of this or that reason and so that then that natural sense of yeah but this is really stupid or this is really destructive that's getting masked by that uh, the inner legal department that is sort of justifying your own uh, aversion or fear or, or desire and so that that and that because it's sort of it's got it's got mindfulness on, on on the label. I'm doing it deliberately, or I'm doing it in a in a slow way, or I'm doing care, doing it carefully. Therefore, it is mindfulness, and so you can be completely unconscious of the effects of what you're doing, and because you think, well, no, I'm I'm being mindful, um, so then therefore there can't be anything wrong with it, and uh, so that's one of the the um, like uh, Lumpur comment. That's good in a way, but it's not the Buddha's way. And also, when uh, when Lumpur Sumedho went to study with Ajahn Buddha Dasa, and then uh, one of the things that Ajahn Buddha Dasa had said uh, when when he was uh, staying there was uh, that th- there was no need to be paying such such close attention to the vinya. That was you know that was uh, unnecessary. All you really all you really really needed to do was to be mindful, and and then that would govern your actions and speech to be in, uh, in accord with Dhamma. And that's when when, uh, when Ajahn Sumedha went back to, to Wampapong and, and uh, had a discussion with Lumpur Char about that, that's when Lumpur Char made this comment which has been quoted many, many times, it's true but it's right, right. It's, tr- it's true but it's not right, it's right but it's not true. Ching de mai tuk, tuk de mai ching. It's true but it's not right, it's right but it's not true. And that... Uh, so there's this to say, yeah, you can make that point, but that's not the whole story. <laughs> that, uh, and so that uh, the um, say, so, and it's not just with, with with ethical things. It can be a, a story I often tell is how this um, this fellow from one of the Buddhist groups. This was years and years ago um, when uh, the the group was visiting here back in the 1980s, and. Um, uh, and he was a, a, a very nice, very nice fellow, very sort of committed and sincere in his practice. And he said, uh, he said, uh, Arjun, you know, I really try, I really try hard with my practice, but you know, my family really give me, give me a lot of grief. 
about being a Buddhist. And I said, oh, that's a shame. He said, yeah, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to do things mindfully, but, you know, they really, they really get, uh, they, they kind of upset them. It really gets on, gets on their nerves. And I began to think, oh dear, you know. So I said, what do you mean by being mindful? And he said, well, you know, like, like at breakfast time, you know, so I'm trying to eat my breakfast mindfully. And my kids and my wife, they're just giving me all this grief, you know. And you could just see this, this scene, like you're sitting there kind of picking the milk bottle up and kind of uh, <laughs> and, uh, t- you know, tipping it in slow motion as the milk pours onto his cornflakes. And it's like, Dad, Dad, look, we've got to get the school bus, you know. Can you just be normal, Dad? And it's like, and you could, and you know, as he described it, it was just, you could, f- you could just feel that sort of morning scenario. Think, oh, man. And he was very, very sincere, and he felt he was sort of being mindful. But he was not being mindful of the effect it was having on his family, and that being mindful didn't, do, didn't mean doing things in slow motion. And besides, the cornflakes will be soggy by the time you get to the end of them. So if you eat them too slowly, they're, all, they're a soggy mess by the time you get there. So I said, well, you know, you can be mindful, but just do things at a normal speed. And he said, well, yeah, but, you know, it's... it's I thought, and so that then, that's you know, the what I mean is that you you think you're being mindful, and then you're screening out the fact that hang on a minute, all my family getting upset with me. This should be a clue that Buddhism <coughs> Buddhism is about peace and harmony and and ending of suffering, and this is creating more suffering. <laughs> and so with that sampajanya is like having taking into account the bigger picture. And so that um, if you are paying attention, then that, uh, and you're not just sort of following your program, we're just sort of, well, it says, it says mindfulness on the tin, so it must be mindfulness. You know, you're not just going by what the label is, but you're, you're listening to that, that inner voice, that, the intuitive wisdom that says, well, hang on a minute, what's happening here? I must be getting this wrong because this is just creating a lot of tension and difficulty. So, so what, what's happening here? And that you're then you're using that ability to reflect and explore rather than just following your your program, and so that is also a very very common theme of Lumpur Chah's teachings was not just being focused on a method and and very often in relationship to uh, like meditation methods that people are very locked into a particular technique and that well I've been doing this technique and I'm supposed to get this result so. Or you know, what, what's happening? I haven't got that. Or I've got something else is happening. You know, am I doing it wrong? And so he would always uh, say, bring attention to what's the attitude with which you're picking the technique up. What are your expectations, or your or your hopes, or your fears? What are you, what are the are you adding on to that? And not just are you doing the technique correctly, but what's the way that's being picked up and, and used? And so that. In that respect, is is really that that um, cultivating that reflective mind, the yoni soul manasikara, that investigation that says, what assumption am I making here? What, what am I taking for granted? Or I'm calling this mindfulness, but is this mindfulness? Or if I didn't, if I didn't uh, tell that lie, I wouldn't have to keep remembering who I told that lie to. So I have to keep keep it. <laughs> I have to sustain the lie by by keeping it uh, uh, covered. I have to remember what I said to which person to to maintain the lie. So if I didn't tell a lie, then I wouldn't have to worry so much about who knows and who doesn't know and create all that that confusion. And so that the um, uh, that use of reflective wisdom is a, a, and a, that quality of, of sampajanya. Uh, just as uh, Ajahn Damananda was saying, well, that's the, in a way, that's what um, leads to a much more f- complete or, or full quality of mindfulness, so that you're really able to to be attuned. The mind is attuned to the time, the place, the situation. Speaking of which, let's continue. It's twenty-two already. <laughs> so the next section is called a suitable land. Lumpur considered England a suitable centre for the dissemination of the Buddha's teachings in the West. For him, as for most people of his age and background, the image of Britain projected around the world in its colonial heyday was yet to fade. 
England seemed to be a country at the very heart of the Western world. At the same time, it was also conveniently small and easy to get around. English society seemed peaceful and stable, with no deep religious prejudices against Buddhism. Moreover, it possessed a rich history of Buddhist scholarship, most notably at the Pali Text Society, which was founded in 1880. Uh, above all, there was a burgeoning interest in the practice of Buddhist meditation. As the Buddhists Lumpur met were almost all members of the educated middle class, the opinion he gained of Westerners' intellect and acuity was high. Comparing the situation with Thailand, where, quote, it seems like we're running out of steam, unquote, he said, from what I've seen, the people in this country are intelligent. If you give them profound observations, they understand them easily. I've explained Dhamma to them, and they've taken away what I've said and reflected upon it. I believe that the basic character of the Westerners will enable them to make Buddhism flourish here. He saw great potential in the thoughtful, questioning attitude of the people he spoke to. Again, he's speaking here. I've looked at the general deportment of the people here, and as yet, it's not so good. So, intellect and understanding, good. Deportment, like conduct and behavior, not so good. But, with regard to the profound teachings, I think they'll take to it easily. In this country, it's as if the species of fruit are good, the soil's good, but there are no farmers. There's nobody to teach people here as there is in Thailand. In my opinion, when coming over to the West, it's not necessary to say much. I'll give you a comparison. It's like you've got some fruit you want them to eat. All you have to say is that it's delicious. It might be sweet, sour, salty. You don't have to go into all of that. You just say that it's delicious and let them take it away and try it. Let them find out for themselves exactly what the taste is like. That's how you have to teach Westerners. Intelligent people don't need a great deal of teaching. With all kinds of knowledge, you have to see for yourself. You can't see something clearly just through having it explained to you. To see the truth, you must proceed until you see it for yourself. Just give them the fruit. You don't have to tell them about the flavor. They'll find out for themselves. Lumpur seemed at ease with his inability to express himself directly to the people who came to see him. He showed no signs of impatience or frustration at the hiatuses resulting from the need for translation of his every word. But it was hard work for Ajahn Sumedho. The task of translating the Dhamma discourses was a particular challenge. When giving talks, Lumpur made no attempt to modify his mode of delivery. Rather than speaking in short bursts to prevent overtaxing the memory of the translator and the attention of his audience, Lumpur spoke in his usual manner. On occasions, a full hour would pass before he instructed Ajahn Sumedho to translate. <laughs> I've been at a few of those. Uh, Lumpur Plian was very good with that. Uh, <coughs> Ajahn Pasna eventually just started bringing a notepad along with him <laughs> to, to write it all down. It was not the most effective way for Lumpur, the great communicator, to get through to his audience. In Thailand, he sometimes used Dhamma talks as a means of training his audience in patience, rather than for the transmission of information and the rousing of faith. But in England, it was hard to say to what extent that kind of intention came to play a part. It may well have been that he simply found it too difficult to transform his unpremeditated flowing style of discourse into a series of discrete chunks. Whatever the case, many members of his audience found that his presence, his mannerisms, the sound of his voice more than compensated for difficulties in understanding his words. One evening, with an argument not guaranteed to inspire his translator to further efforts, Lumpur spoke of the inferiority of language compared to direct experience. Everybody knew what water felt like, but people of different nationalities had different words for the experience. And Lumpur is speaking here. When we human beings are experiencing the same thing, then we don't have to say so much. Just by looking at each other, we already understand each other. That's the feeling I had as I walked in here. 
So going back to his uh, impressions of the British society, he was extremely impressed with the, the British uh, capacity to queue. And uh, that was something that he was very, very touched by. He would see people standing at the bus stop all in a, in a neat line. And, so he, and apparently he would ask, so, so they don't all just kind of, when the bus stops, they don't all rush on? Say, oh, no, 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 no. And then he, they explained that in, in Britain, queue jumping is like a, a major uh, social disgrace. Someone who jumps the queue is completely unacceptable. You know, you know, it's like someone who, who is, um, acts in a cruel way to a dog or a cat is completely socially unacceptable. It's kind of, it's, you, know, you can, you can uh, have a, uh, a fight with another human being and punch somebody in the mouth, and that's all right. <laughs> if, you, if you kick the dog, then you'll be cast out and disgraced. So that apparently Lumpur, was, when he saw people standing in the line at the bus stop, and he'd say, "So, so they don't all rush when the bus come, when the bus when the bus pulls up." Oh no, no, no! I said, and they they explained because uh, and Lumpur Kemadama, being British, was very well acquainted with the, how it works. He said, you know, "If they if they pull up, and then the each bus has a driver and a conductor. So if the conductor says there's room for six more, then six people will get on, and then person number seven will stop at the front of the line." And Lumpur said. Really? Jingle. <laughs> I said, yep, number seven will stop. Said, they won't kind of fight together. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> they would never do that. He said, oh. He was impressed. Said, okay, they've got some, uh, some orderliness. They have, they have some restraint. So one point for the Brits. Our capacity to queue is uh, suitably uh, recognized. So the next section is called Planting the Lotus. Lungpur was satisfied with what he saw in England. Certainly, living conditions for the Sangha were far removed from those in the forest monasteries of Isan, but he had never expected it to be otherwise. Developing a forest-dwelling mendicant order was obviously going to be a long-term project. What Lungpur was looking for was a solid core of lay support and potential for future development. These he found. The deciding factor in his agreement to the new venture was his confidence in Ajahn Sumedho's ability to carry the burden. With the assistance of Venerable Kemadamo and Samanera Jinadato, soon to be augmented by two more North American monks trained in Wapananachat, Venerables Anando and Viradamo, there would, from the start, be a Sangha in residence. As four monks provided the minimum quorum needed for rituals, such as the Patimokha recitation, this was an important constituent of the solid foundation he was seeking to establish. Lungpur was aware of the frequent failures of temples focused upon a single charismatic figure rather than a community of monks. He was emphatic that the success of the whole venture depended on maintaining the observances that characterized the tradition in Thailand, in particular, the scrupulous adherence to the vinya, and the upholding of practices such as a daily alms round. There were many ideas being bandied about in the lay community regarding which aspects of the tradition might have to be discarded. Mpo's decision was to try to transplant the whole thing, and then, through trial and error, see where adaptations might have to be made. During a discussion about the practice of vinya in England, Ajahn Sumedho mentioned to Lumpur that the governing council of one of the Asian Theravada Sanghas had recently passed a resolution permitting monks living abroad to waive the rule forbidding the use of money. Their argument had been that keeping the rule in non-Buddhist countries was impractical. Lumpur strongly disagreed. The rules governing monks' relationship to money were key to the preservation of the vinya as a whole. The Buddha had stipulated procedures involving lay stewards that were fit for purpose and should be respected. An official declaration that a particular rule was no longer practical set a dangerous precedent. In fact, the difficulty in keeping some of the rules was not a bad thing at all. It prevented monks from becoming careless about the vinya. And then this is again Lumpur speaking here. We have to maintain the vinya in perpetuity. In the future, if monks accept money, They'll start buying and selling, and that will be the end of it. There'll be no pure monks in Thailand or England or on the whole face of the earth. All down the drain. 
I'm not sure what the Thai expression for that would be. <laughs> All down the drain. It was clear that Lung Po felt strongly that relaxing the practice of any of the core training rules would lead to a slippery slope that must be resolutely avoided. But while the vinya and observances were to be upheld without picking and choosing according to convenience, Lung Po allowed that, in certain areas, there was room for flexibility. He was not insisting that everything had to be done in exactly the same way as it was in Thailand. Whenever he found himself in unfamiliar situations, he said the wise monk should examine prevailing conditions and consider to what degree he might adapt to local customs without undermining his vinaya practice. Again, Lumpur speaking here. It is intelligent to learn how to make compromises when faced with things that are not in direct conflict with the vinaya, are not harmful things in themselves, but are simply different from our own agreed ways of doing things. Minor changes he sanctioned were prompted by the much colder climate. They included the wearing of shoes on arms round and the covering of the right shoulder within monastic boundaries. This latter allowance led to the design of long-sleeved shirt-cum-jacket, under which sweaters could be worn in the winter. So on those two particular points, um, the, they did keep to going barefoot on arms round for the, uh, in the, the first few months. Um, well, it was summertime and then autumn, and so they were, when they went on their daily arms round around Hampstead and across Hampstead Heath, they were going barefooted at first, but then as the autumn turned into winter, then um, I think it was Sister Rochna, who was then Pat Stoll, was, was around a lot of the time in the Vihara, and so uh, Lumpur described her having this kind of um, uh, panicked and very distressed response to say, Venerable Sumito, your feet are blue! That you know, it was just so cold. It was kind of icy uh, you know, winter, walking along the pavement in the wintertime. Venerable Sumito, your feet are blue! And she was sort of upset and distressed that you have to wear shoes, you have to wear sandals. Please, 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 please wear sandals. And so uh, Lumpur thought, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but yeah, my feet are blue. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's a good point. Good point. And it, yeah, it's uncomfortable too. It's painful. So then they started taking sandals to be um, allowable. And so then um, also the Lumpur, Lumpur Cha, even though um, normally inside the monastery you wear the robe over one shoulder, outside the monastery you have the robe over both shoulders, uh, what he noticed in, in the cold weather, because it actually... Um, it snowed while he was there. That was in the second trip in, in uh, when they came in uh, at the end of April in 1979. And it, was, it was May, and um, uh, Ajahn often told the story uh, that they were in the Vihara in Hampstead. And he said, Lumpur, Lumpur, look, it's snowing, it's snowing. And he said, close the window. Because <laughs> 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 Lumpur Chah had never seen snow before. And so Ananda was all excited. Lumpur said, shut the window. It's freezing. So, uh, so in those early days, so then in the Vihara, when it was cold, then people would be wearing different kinds of sweatshirts and jumpers and you know, different, uh, different things. And so Lumpur thought, this looks pretty scruffy, um, with people having all these different kinds of, of, uh, of jackets and jumpers and, and sweaters and whatnot. So he said, um, you can wear the robe over both shoulders inside the monastery. So when I first came from Thailand in late 1979, that was the standard, was you wore your robe over both shoulders, whether you were in the monastery or outside the monastery, that was the, were for, the, for the pujas and the mealtime, we had our robe over both shoulders, and that was um, the, uh, the standard. And then uh, Ajahn Menindo had been in New Zealand, and he came in, I think, 1980, and uh, he had... Um, stayed with a uh, Korean, uh, well, a New Zealander who'd been a monk in Korea, and uh, he, and Ajahn Menindo, who's a very good sewer, had noticed that this monk from the Korean tradition had this really nifty jacket. So Ajahn Menindo was very keen to go to live in England rather than back to Thailand, and so he thought maybe I get a, get the pattern off this monk, <laughs> and so uh, uh, he uh, he he copied down the pattern for the sewing of these uh, these jackets. So the, the jackets that we wear. These kind of standard jackets. This is actually a Korean. Uh, this is a Korean style uh, uh, jacket. And so, when uh, years later, when and it, uh, when um, 
we were uh, visited by some elder Korean monks at, uh, at the Mayagiri Monastery. They were just like, look at look at all these guys are wearing this. Yeah, I thought you were from Thailand. This is this is the old style Korean jacket. Where'd you get this from? So he said, well, we covered it from you guys. <laughs> Because it's pretty cold. Korea has uh, you know, freezing winters as well, so they had developed their own jackets. So, so there was that, and so then that uh, became. So uh, uh, Ajahn Sumedho was quite impressed with that, and it was kind of uh, fairly uniform. We could all make these jackets for ourselves, and so then that was what we wore in the in the cold season. And so then uh, again, he um, ran that past the elders in Thailand saying this is uh, to, is this okay? Lumpur said we should wear the robe over both shoulders in the winter but if we have these fairly standard jackets then is that okay to use instead and so then that became the, the norm for our, our community. Regarding the collection of food, when did it stop being the norm to go out every day and also when did breakfast kind of become incorporated? Um, well, it's hard to say. I think all the time that I was at uh, Chittas, I think we're up into the um, the late 80s here, then some people would be going out on arms round every day. I mean, usually we'd just go out with an empty bowl. You weren't going necessarily to visit people's houses or into the local town. But then in the early 90s, I think, um, what had happened was that the arms round had become stand, at least from here, we'd be like going to visit people's houses and it'd be like a chat session, sitting having tea and custard creams and ginger nuts. And, and so um, people uh, uh, didn't like that so, that social side of it so much. And so that then um, uh, the, um, the, the standard of going for, out for arms and just standing on the, on the pavement and then receiving food offerings from, from, uh, from random people uh, I think that was actually Ajahn Jayanto when he was a, a Navaka monk. He was on retreat in the forest of Chithurst and just did a, on, on impulse, he just uh, decided to walk to, to Midhurst one day to see what he could, rather than going to the house of food, he thought, I'm supposed to be a monk, I'm supposed to live on arms. I'm just going to walk to Midhurst and see what happens. And then he got some food. And, oh, that was good. So he did it again, second day. And, oh, it worked again. By day three he thought, maybe I should ask the Ajahn. And so then, so that was what Ajahn Jayanta says, how many Vasa now? What, 20? Six or seven, I think. So it was uh, more than 20 years ago then. That was really what kicked off the um, going out for arms and just standing on the, on the street and, uh, um, and living on that as the food for the day. So probably uh, around the early 90s, late 80s it stopped being something that, that was sort of done every single day and then particularly with Amravati it was just surviving here I mean, you know, uh, the, um, the amount of work that needed to be done around the place it, just having a whole bunch of people going out every day for non-existent arms it was like well yeah it's, it's okay but also we need a lot of there's a lot of work that needs to happen here so there was a sort of drift towards the practical necessity of, of fixing up these sort of kind of battered old huts to be livable and then keeping up that. So it was just like a slow drift. It was like less and less people would go every day and then it'd be um, two or three times a week and then and then um, be uh, you know, once, or, once or twice a week. Okay. Okay. Um, just a very briefly, is there any impediment to people continuing to do arms round now? We aren't quite so inundated with work here. Uh, no, I think, and, and I think the... Um, Generally, on the on the monk side, um, people go. Uh, usually, a group of two or three will go out about once a week. On average, it's, it's done in a sort of random way. It's not just it's systematic. Like this, this so, this people put their names on. Go. Well, once or twice a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can go one, once a week when there's a full moon or a new moon, and then mm-hmm. twice a week on the other week. Yeah. So there you go. So. So it, it certainly it's encouraged, and it was uh, one of the things that Yilumpucha emphasized that it's not just for the food that you might get or might not get, but rather you're being a uh, heavenly messenger, one of the, the devadutas. You're uh, you're you're flying the Buddha's flag in into uh, the to the world, and and he made it, it clear. So it doesn't matter that they don't even know that you're a Buddhist or a, or a monk, or just 
people seeing the robe, seeing someone who's quiet and restrained and, and uh, who's a re- religious figure, that's a, enough of a heavenly messenger. The, the, the monk that the Buddha saw, according to the stories, was not a, uh, it wasn't, wasn't a Buddhist monk. You know, it was just a, a summoner of some kind in the story, so that that um, symbol of the religious seeker. And that's often what, what you find is not so much people are interested in you as a, as a Buddhist, but just they, they like to see that around. And uh, I remember in, in Chithurst, in the, also we, w- we would tend to stop that during the winter retreat time. Uh, we wouldn't go out on the arms round every day. And so then, and you get the local farmers say, you know, oh, where were you? I haven't seen you for months. You know, where have you been? You know, because they thought, that they just like you seeing you walking across the, the footpaths and sort of down through the fields and, and along the lanes. So just as they drive, sort of drive past you, it's going to slow down to make way for you. That would be something that would brighten their day just seeing a summer on the road and you would uh, you think oh really he misses us oh that's interesting you know there's someone who never even visits but just they they like to see you around as part of the landscape that you're part of the uh, the Sussex world or Hertfordshire part of the Hertfordshire landscape okay so I think it's just gone seven now so we can uh, we can leave it there um for today.